electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now on Last Call, OPEC Plus whiplash, a critical meeting leaving heads spinning over prices. We'll try to make sense of it all. A November to remember. An epic month for wrapping up for your money is December, gearing up to be even bigger and better. President Biden taking aim at both corporations and the ultra-rich, but some are saying his facts may be a little bit fuzzy. A respiratory illness outbreak intensifying in China with concerns it now may be spreading in one American state. Plus... The red-hot AI job that pays nearly a quarter million a year. Our friend applied for it. Wait till you see what happened. All that much more across the hour. So belly up or buckle up because last call is up right now. Hi, everybody. Good evening here. Good afternoon out west. I am Brian Sullivan. Thanks for joining us. All of that ahead. But we begin tonight with big news on perhaps the most anticipated car or truck in years. It is the Tesla Cybertruck. Elon Musk delivering 12 of them in front of a packed house at Tesla's factory in Austin, Texas. The billionaire called the Cybertruck potentially Tesla's best product. Now, after years of waiting, investors actually kind of yawned today, but Keep in mind, Tesla's stock is up 20% this month and has nearly doubled this year. Obviously, Phil LeBeau was following the big event. Phil, we finally got details about the Cybertruck. 12 people, very lucky ones or very early ones, got them. What did we learn today? Yep. Well, we learned most importantly the pricing on the Cybertruck, and we'll talk about that in just a little bit. But this this was vintage Tesla. We're going to give you a show as part of handing over the keys, if you will, to a a new vehicle. And, you know, when people look at Elon Musk, they want to see a show. And that's what they got today. A little dark at times to see exactly what was happening at the Gigafactory in Texas. But when they were rolling out the Tesla Cybertrucks, you did get a sense of this is completely different. This truck goes 0 to 60, 2.6 seconds, towing capacity of 11,000 pounds, and the price range, you've got everything from the base model, and those don't come out until 2025, at roughly $61,000. The top price, which they're calling the Cyber Beast, starts at $99,990. Here's Elon Musk from today. Tougher than bullets. Uh, Tow pretty much anything. Uh, faster than a 911 while towing a 911. <laughs> so, uh, and deliveries bring, begin now. Thank you. That's typical of every time you see a delivery event with Elon Musk. Plenty of fans as well as employees in the crowd. Uh, a couple of things. He talked about tougher than bullets. Well, they backed it up by showing video of them firing a Tommy gun into the side into the stainless steel panels, and yes, they stopped the bullets. So if you're looking for a bulletproof truck, it's the Cybertruck. And yes, they did show video of it beating a Porsche 911 in a drag race while towing 
a Porsche 911. So it's not just faster than a Porsche 911. It's faster than a Porsche 911 while towing a Porsche 911. Does this move the needle for Tesla in terms of EV deliveries? Not immediately and probably not, well, for, not for some time. Look, they're going to ramp up production slowly. They're going to deliver, uh, I don't know, a couple hundred maybe in, in this month, if that. Who knows for sure? But they are looking at deliveries slowly increasing. And as you take a look at shares of Tesla, keep in mind that they are planning to deliver 1.8 million vehicles this year, Brian. The street expects them to deliver 2.1 million vehicles next year. So the Cybertruck is part of that, not a huge part, but an important part. Oh, I, th I think the video is very apt because I have a feeling the first people to get the Cybertruck are going to be people that probably also have a Porsche in the garage. I is the truck eligible for the federal tax credit, Phil? It is. Uh, as far as I can tell, it is. But, you know, these rules are evolving in part because, and we'll learn more about this over the next 24, 48 hours, the rules in terms of critical materials uh, that are going into the batteries that are used in vehicles. But remember, Tesla manufactures its battery cells and battery packs here in the United States. And then the question of sourcing of the minerals that go within those battery cells. Uh, but I do believe that it's going to be fully uh, qualified for that $7,500 credit. Does the back, do we know, I mean, listen, trucks, if you use them for truck stuff, you put stuff in yeah. the back. The back opens, right? Does it slide up or does it pop up? It does. I mean, okay, you yes. can actually use it, it as a up. truck. Yes, you can. I'm not sure how many people are buying these for the functional use that you typically think of for a pickup truck, Brian. Let's be honest here. Within the pickup truck market, 50% of it, goes to contractors, fleets, people who actually use it on job sites. Another 30% are people who purpose use it. I'm hauling a boat. I'm hauling a, a horse trailer out to a ranch, things like that. And then the other 20%, look, that's all about style. I, I'm, I'm driving around L.A. with the most tricked out pickup truck around. That's the segment of the pickup market that's mm. going to be most interested in in the cyber truck you nailed it for 99.999 fellow bow thank you very much for the cyber beast by the way the higher yeah. inversion all right let's talk about the cyber truck and bring in our lead off panel on set here we got wedbush securities managing director longtime tesla bull dan ives a deepwater asset management managing partner gene munster dan big deal to, we've been waiting for years right and as tom petty said the waiting is the hardest part it's here now, but how many of these can they actually deliver? Look, it's four years in the meek. I think I view it as a historical moment for Musk and Tesla in terms of the Cybertruck launch. I think the big thing is really when it gets the scale. 2025, two to 250,000 units per year. Look, you look at reservations right now. You have uh, called two million. Let's say conversion we think could be about 40 percent. This does move the needle. Now, producing. That's only 800,000. Now, producing, you probably next year, forty to 50000 in terms of what they could produce. But in my opinion, this does move the needle, and I think it's just another flex-to-muscle moment for Musk and Tesla. Yeah, Gene, is it material to the company and to the stock, or is it primarily just a really cool marketing vehicle, for lack of a better term? So I'm, I'm optimistic about Tesla, and I'm, I think I'm – I'm uh, realistic that this is not going to move the needle for the next couple of years. And 
agree with Dan that this has big potential, but really this is going to be a sideshow. And I think Phil's setup was spot on as far as the market that this is going to address, you know, that 20% of the market. And that kind of puts in the category of an SRX, that's 5% of their total deliveries. And so there's a massive opportunity here, make, make no doubt about it, but they got to get that price down. And I think the prices that we saw today were 20, 25% higher than I was expecting. That's a big deal. They're $10,000 more per vehicle for a comparable, if you want to call it comparable, F-150 Lightning. 10000 is a lot of money. So this really isn't going to move the needle for the next couple of years. When they bring the price down and they uh, start to, I think, go after the uh, what I think will be a bigger part of the market, 26. Dan, you said 250000 and 25. Uh, that was my number yesterday. Now that's my number for 26. Mm. You know, if I'm looking at it, it's, it's a unique vehicle, right? Mm. So obviously, mm. it, I think people are going to love it or they're not. I'm looking at it as a suburban dad thinking, where's the dog go? Where's the bicycle go? Where do the kids go? When the kids come third, sure. you notice that. Um, and I just wonder what that market really is, absent those two million reservations, which to your own point, are not all going to convert. Sure. I, I think, and Gene's talked about this as well, I think it's really about the halo effect. I think what's important here for Tesla, it's not just about the units, it's about them creating another category. And I think what you're seeing, even in Detroit with GM, Ford, really paring back a little of their EV strategy, Tesla is ultimately doubling down. And I think when you look at Cybertruck, they're going to create the category. I do think over time, as Gene talks about, prices do come down. But when, in terms of moving the needle, you start to add two, 250,000 units, three, 350,000 with some other you know, models that come on. This does, in my opinion, it's the next phase of the Tesla growth story. Sure, but I guess, Gene, what we don't know, and Dan or Gene, if, if we do know this, and I just don't know it, please correct me, do we know what it costs to make it? Are they going to be able to sell it profitably even for 99999 or 61000 or whichever version you get? Because if not, then we're just talking about a novelty item. Well, at the current production level, no, they're going to be losing probably 40000 on each vehicle. 40000 on each vehicle, probably? Yeah, at the at the current scale, I mean, it's, uh, once they start to get above 10,000, then that's going to start to drop. But right now, they're just, I mean, they're basically hand-making these cars right now. But eventually, that's going to, at next year, that's going to ramp. And I think that it is, the next two years, it's, it's a sideshow. But I, I want to emphasize, Dan said something that's really important, is that I think that, I know, I've been waiting for this for four years. I was disappointed today in the price. I, I love the, I have a reservation. I don't know if I'm going to get it. I think I'm probably going to wait a couple years for the price to come down and get it. So I was disappointed, but I think that that disappointment kind of misses the bigger picture. And I just want to emphasize what Dan said, is that this is about a company that is embracing EVs 100%, just like BYD. And at the same time, you're seeing GM backing off. They're in a catch-22. And I think it's more about this company just continuing to build its brand as electrification. And I think that we're going to see these buyers of EVs return in the next five years and the rest of big autos basically going to be offsides trying to catch up. I think Gene nailed it because essentially what's here, it's Tesla's world. Everyone else is paying rent from an EV perspective. Yeah, I mean, I, I tweeted out and said on the show, Dan, I don't think people want EVs. They want Teslas and they're different. Exactly. And, and I think, Brian, the 313 area code, you're seeing them sort of take a step back. And I think what this is really Musk and Tesla really showing from a technology mind and market share lead, just how they're miles ahead of the competition. 
Maybe with the 313 reference, you could say they're eight miles. <laughs> I like of, that. You let everybody yeah. in the 313 put your hands up. Little Eminem reference. I like it. Marshall Mathers. Yeah. 313. Thank you very much, Dan Ives. Gene Munster in the 612. Right on, Brian. You know it. Amazing. <laughs> Get a juicy Lucy at the local. Gene, thank you very much. Thank you. All right, in the meantime, it was mostly a good day for the markets and your money. The Dow popping nearly 1.5%, though a lot of that was Salesforce's big day. The S&P 500 up four-tenths of a percent today. The Nasdaq actually dropped a touch, though. Listen, had a massive month, up over 10%. Inside the market, the big winner of the day was who we just mentioned, Salesforce. Best stock in the S&P 500, up 9%. The biggest decliner, another company we just referenced. Down 3.13, maybe. It was Ford down 3.13, the 313. we got to check that out. Anyway, we'll figure it out. All right, we are just getting started and on deck. Where are your gasoline prices going? Oh, oil, surprising move after a big OPEC meeting. Plus, holy November, the book's closing on a monster month for stocks and bonds. Did you cash in or let it ride in December? We'll talk about it next. Experience the joy of running in the new Triumph 22 from Saucony, the original running brand. Stacked with luxury foam cushioning, Triumph 22 turns miles into smiles with the ultimate blend of comfort and energy return. Shop Triumph 22 at Saucony.com. That's S-A-U-C-O-N-Y.com. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. All right, time for tomorrow's news tonight. Some of the stories that you're going to be talking about tomorrow morning. Disney reinstating its dividend after a three-year suspension. Company announcing a cash dividend of 30 cents a share that will be payable to shareholders as of January. This comes after news earlier today from activist investor Nelson Peltz. His firm Tryon Fund Management is waging a proxy fight against Disney, and it is now seeking at least three seats on the board. Shares of Disney largely unchanged right now. Next up, a major update on Montana's efforts to ban TikTok. A judge has blocked the ban from taking effect in the state, which was supposed to happen as of January 1st. U.S. District Judge Donald Malloy says the ban, quote, oversteps state power and infringes on the constitutional rights of users. Huh. TikTok says it has more than 150 million active users in the United States. In the meantime, it was a wild and a little bit weird day for oil. Now, in the end... Oil ended up falling about 2%, but earlier in the session, oil was higher. It all had to do with speculation about what would come out of the OPEC meeting and its allies. Well, the market got what it expected. It also didn't get what it expected. Here's why we say that. OPEC, Russia, and other countries, a group known as OPEC+, Plus, ultimately came away with more production cuts of just under, realistically, about 900,000 barrels a day. That should have been bullish for prices. The problem was that those additional cuts, which do come on top of additional cuts made earlier this year, are considered voluntary. They were not in the official OPEC communique, meaning they may not happen. It's completely up to each nation on its own. However, if these voluntary cuts do happen, the combined total of these new cuts 
could be about 2.2 million barrels a day. Now, that was not the only surprise out of OPEC. They also announced that growing oil powerhouse Brazil will join the OPEC Plus Alliance. For more on this and oil, let's bring in president and founder of Cornerstone Analytics, Mike Rothman, who's been to no doubt more OPEC meetings than probably any single human alive. Mike, so we welcome you back on the program. What did you make of today's virtual meeting? Well, the meeting uh, and the reaction of the market were interesting because the cuts that were announced, the voluntary cuts, which were frankly above and beyond what I think most people would have expected, wasn't the issue as much as the way they presented it. It was almost like the market reaction was a verdict about the fact that it didn't seem to be presented in this very believable format. Because as you noted just now, they did not put a communique out uh, with the table of these cuts. But the reality is the whole idea of what they were going to do and then what they agreed to do is really the same story that's been going on for quite some time, which is to prevent oil inventories from building, especially building in the first quarter, which is when demand globally typically drops down. So the market, I don't want to say it got it wrong because this is why we all have jobs, but I think the market was more focused on the form and kind of missed the content of what they actually agreed to do. It is much easier, at least in my pea brain, to make a bullish case for oil than a bearish case. But that would have obviously been incorrect. Oil is actually flat to even maybe slightly down from, say, 13 months ago and certainly well down off its Russia invasion highs. What's the bear case for oil? Who's betting against oil so much? It seems that the recurring story on the bear side is a big rebound in non-OPEC supply, which this will be the third year where that hasn't uh, borne out. And then a concern that demand growth would be weak. But we're going on month like 31 or 32, where global demand numbers are coming in higher than the consensus. It's been a little bit of a puzzle about why prices aren't actually higher than they should be right now, given where inventory levels are. But a cogent case about a bearish call on oil is very tough to sell. All the data is lining up and suggesting that the risk is actually disproportionately skewed to the upside. And in fact, that is what we're advising our clients uh, with and telling them to take advantage of these kind of pullbacks, whether it's directly related in the commodity or energy yeah. equities, which trade as a proxy for the commodity. Well, U.S. record high, Brazil, at th- maybe call it three and a half to even maybe a little bit more barrels per day, Guyana as well. And Mike, sit tight because I actually want to get your thoughts on kind of those countries I just mentioned It's an odd story, folks, Uh, and you probably haven't heard this elsewhere, but Brazil says it is increasing its military presence along its northern border because of the threat of a growing fight between Venezuela and Guyana. In fact, there is a little bit of worry out there that Venezuela could actually invade part of Guyana over this dispute. Now, the two nations have argued over rights to a certain chunk of land for a long time, which, by the way, is a massive part of Guyana. And they kind of argued about it for years, but now it appears to be coming to a head. Venezuelans are planning to vote on the right to the area on December 3rd. If that vote wins, Venezuela will effectively be saying that it has the right to that region of Guyana. Now, Guyana, of course, recently had an oil boom. And though that oil is out to sea, it is not at risk directly in this fight. Mike, it's an odd story, right? You've got Exxon and Hess out there pumping, what, 400,000 or so barrels a day looking to go 
well above that. And now you got Venezuela saber rattling over that country. Is this something we need to worry about? I wouldn't worry about it at this point. The the issue, uh, as you're correctly noting, is that in Venezuela, they didn't really care about this land and it's been disputed, but they didn't care about it until uh, outside international oil companies started to develop it. So the indication is that Exxon's operations are really going to be the primary operator in that area, aren't affected, and the development of the oil resources doesn't appear to be an issue. And when that changes, and it's really if that changes, then this becomes a more of an, an interesting story. It's not something we're concerned about. I don't expect it's going to be really a market issue at this point. There are much bigger geopolitical issues afoot. But that seems to be the backstory. Yeah. Uh, Guyana, to your uh, point, is one of the few countries where we have growth in production net. And in the scheme of things, it's small for the oil balance. For Guyana, it's an enormous boon. But yeah. we're talking of incrementally 100 to 170,000 barrels a day per year for another year or two. And then it seems to start running out of juice. But in a market where spare capacity mm -hmm. is really limited to just a couple of countries and we have other bigger picture pressures on oil, any loss of supply starts to take on some yeah. significance. So that's, yep. like I said, that's a little bit down the road. I don't think we're at that point. Just a weird story. Amazing how this little nation, <clears throat> excuse me, starts to get rich and now suddenly Venezuela is, is interested. Mike Rothman, yeah. Cornerstone Analytics. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right, coming up, if you have not checked your portfolio lately, what are you waiting for? It's probably got a lot of good news for you. Stocks closing out a huge November is a record December. Coming next for your money, two top minds. Weigh in ahead. Experience the joy of running in the new Triumph 22 from Saucony, the original running brand. Stacked with luxury foam cushioning, Triumph 22 turns miles into smiles with the ultimate blend of comfort and energy return. Shop Triumph 22 at Saucony.com. That's S-A-U-C-O-N-Y.com. All right, welcome back. Call it a November to remember, or my personal favorite, November rain. Because it has been a monster month for the markets and your money. Here's your monthly scorecard. The NASDAQ, powered by the Magnificent 7, of course, surging 10%. The S&P and Dow into November up over 8%, with the Dow scoring its highest close of the year. The S&P and NASDAQ both saw their biggest monthly gains since July of last year. Both the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ also snapped three-month losing streaks. There's plenty to love ahead of the final trading month of the year. And so what is fueling the sudden surge? Well, might be November's bond blowout and thus lower bond yields. Yields have been tumbling from the recent highs. Yields go down when prices go up. And it was the best month for an aggregate bond index since Wham! ruled the music charts all the way back in 1985. They had two of the top three songs that year. You could see how the S&P 500 has responded to those lower yields. And to wrap things up, Here's a bonus stud and dud for the month. The best performer, travel website Expedia, a 42% jump this month. The November dud, Paycom, seeing a drop of more than 25%. So what should you expect for December as we prepare to close out the year? Joining us now is G-Squared Private Wealth Founding Partner and Chief Investment Officer Victoria Green and Bond Blocks Investment Management Co-Founder Joanna Gallegos. Victoria, I'll start with you. You're probably not calling for a 10% jump in the NASDAQ for December, too. I get it. Maybe you are. 
Uh, but do you think we'll wrap up the year strong? Uh, no, I think we're going to go more sideways. Look, we're topping out right where we uh, topped out in July, right around 45.88. And I just don't think we've got the legs. I think Santa came early. This is great. Um, but I think we're going to go a little bit more choppy and sideways. And you saw that today. You know, you saw the mega caps actually tail off pretty hard today. It was one of the biggest divergences between the Dow and the NASDAQ on performance. It was almost 200 basis points today. But mostly it's also because I think yields have gone a little too far too fast. I mean, Deutsche Bank's pricing in 175 basis points of cuts. Uh, we're thinking of cuts starting in May next year. I just think that's a little bit, a little bit too aggressive. So we'll see what Powell says tomorrow. I really think you're going to start to hear more hawkish rhetoric that's going to slow this rally, slow this roll, because they want to keep their options on the table because the biggest, biggest problems in the market is where expectations and reality collide. And if the Fed's not ready to cut, that might be really brutal next year as it gets repriced. Well, Joanne, I'm trying to figure out what the reality is for bonds, because, I mean, it's just like everything's going up. Yeah, I mean, we've seen rallies like this at different points since 2022. But I think what we've been saying all year is that structurally things are really different for fixed income. And the fact that we may be nearing the rate hiking cycle does bear well for risk in fixed income. So 2024 has a big opportunity for bond investors because you're supported by these high yields that exist already. And if it does sort of, we, we do achieve a soft landing, there is opportunity to you know see much more price return from fixed income. So it's sort of a, I wouldn't call it the best of both worlds uh, exactly, but it's interesting. We, you're just really encouraging folks to look not only at stocks right now, go back to bonds. They are structurally helpful to your portfolio right now. Now, they're set up for um, good returns if this continues. You can also take advantage of really interesting credit opportunities because yields are so high. There's a lot of value there. Well, Joanna, I'll go back to you because bonds are a great big world. I mean, much, much bigger than stocks in many ways. When you say great opportunities, where? Treasuries, corporates, junk bonds? Well, we've been advocating investors and we've been talking to clients about looking at credit for over six months now. And that's because, yes, it's been easy to um, make a treasury trade on the short side. But in corporate credit, the um, corporate issuers enter 2023 from a, a strong position and they've been resilient. Their fundamentals are actually quite healthy. They've weathered through 2023 in terms of additional rate hikes. If rates do go down in 2024, they may they may make um, a, a great return in your portfolio. Um, so the relative strength, the corporate resiliency, mm -hmm. um, we think high yield and credit is the place to be looking for opportunity. Victoria, you made some great calls, even going back to the 5 a.m. show we used to do together. Thank you, by the way, for getting yeah. up that early on IBM. IBM, who'd have thunk it? Great call there. Some of the energy names. Leave us with some optimism. Give us. You said sideways for the market, but I guess you like one or two right. specific stocks. Yeah, and I do. I still like IBM. I like my dividends here. I think we've gone a little far on tech. I think you hold your core tech positions, hold the mega caps. They might be expensive, but AI is certainly going to be a huge driver over the next five years. You know, Salesforce kind of ratified it. Look for companies that have solid quality balance sheets. IBM, nobody was talking about them and they still don't. Like even when we talk about AI, they were one of the founders of AI with Watson and what they're doing with consulting and Watson X. Because when you look at it and companies have to say, oh, absolutely, we're adopting AI. They they don't actually know how to do that correctly. So how do you do that? How do you integrate your cloud? People are still moving their cloud from on-premise to, to into the or 
moving their servers, I'm sorry, from on-premise to into the cloud. And so this hybrid cloud with Red Hat, they just have a whole bunch of ways they touch enterprise that I think is going to be very profitable as we see corporate IT spending. Uh, hopefully it's bottomed out now and continue to grow. I think that's an overlooked stock that's reasonably valued and it might be a steal. Amazing. IBM, great call. Surprised a lot of people. Joanna, Victoria, thank you both very much. Be well. All right, still ahead here on Last Call, President Biden coming in hot today, taking new swings of both corporations and the rich. But some are saying the facts may have been a little fuzzy. We'll explain and discuss next. All right, welcome back to Last Call. President Biden coming out swinging today, taking aim at two favorite targets. First up, corporations. After a key inflation gauge cooled to its lowest point since 2021, President said this on X, quote, Let me be clear to any corporation that has not brought their prices back down, even as inflation has come down, it is time to stop the price gouging, give American consumers a break. So he's obviously implying companies somehow have lower costs and need to pass those along. Talk about that more in a second. But that was not all. The president also backed a new proposal by Senate Democrats that would tax the unrealized capital gains of the ultra wealthy. The president, again, writing, quote, a billionaire minimum tax of just 25 percent would raise 440 billion over the next 10 years. Imagine what we could do if we just made billionaires pay their taxes like everybody else. It's despite the fact that the share of income taxes paid by the wealthy have only gone up over time, according to the nonpartisan tax foundation. But this is politics. We get it. But do all the facts line up with what the president said? Let's take it to our panel. With us tonight is former U.S. Labor Secretary, Professor of Public Policy at UC Berkeley, and that is Robert Reich, and American Enterprise Institute Economic Analyst and Contributor, Jimmy Petakoukas. Thank you both for joining us. Um, Professor Reich, first off, I mean, inflation's not coming down. I take issue with that. The inflation rate is coming down, but we're not seeing prices collapse. Does the president, though, have a point about gouging? Well, I think the president is trying to make the distinction that you just made, Brian, which is that inflation uh, and bringing inflation down is different from bringing prices down. And a lot of the public right now, they say, well, we're, inflation is still a problem. What they really mean is that they are seeing at the, in the grocery stores uh, and with consumer goods generally, they're seeing prices stay very, very high because even though many costs have come down for big corporations, they are keeping prices high naturally to make as much money as they possibly can. Yeah, Jimmy, listen, corporate profits overall are at, at a record high. But I, I just wonder, you know, when you say gouging, you're sort of demonizing corporate America. And there's no such thing as corporations. Corporations are just groups of people. And I kind of what, what rattled me a little bit was not only the incorrect statement about inflation, but more just the fact that you're kind of demonizing a, a millions of people in a weird way. Yeah, listen, as a, as, a, as a statement of economics, it's absolutely silly. It seems to confuse inflation and disinflation and deflation. And deflation. Yeah. So, it's, it's, so it's a ridiculous statement. Now, as as politics, you know, maybe maybe not. Maybe their polling says, you know, that we should be going after companies more. I'm sure I'm sure Bob wishes he, we had seen a lot more tweets like this. And, you know, same thing with this billionaire's tax you mentioned earlier. So as politics, it may make a lot of sense. But. It is not uncommon after economic shocks for profits to go up. So what you're saying is that like every time there's been like an economic shock for like the past hundred years, 
corporations have suddenly got greedy and they've been trying to trying to exploit people. And remember that if consumers did not have the demand to support those prices, those prices would come down. That's how companies are, quote unquote, getting away with it, because there's lots of demand. I would think Bob likes high demand economy. Uh, uh, Jimmy, I do like a high demand economy, but I also like an economy that's competitive. And what we do know about the American economy is that more and more industry has become more and more concentrated in the hands of fewer and fewer companies. And this allows companies to raise their prices without worrying about losing consumers. Uh, and this is a problem. I, I think the way to deal with it, ideally, is through antitrust law. And the Biden administration is doing something that my administration, the Clinton administration and the Obama administration did not do enough of, in my humble opinion, and that is enforce the antitrust laws. Listen, I mean, the reason we have an inflation problem is because of fiscal and monetary policy. I mean, that I mean, that was what has changed between 2019 and today. We had a pandemic and we decided to we decided to use uh, monetary policy and fiscal policy to keep the economy from collapsing. And now, and now we're trying to deal with it. All these other things like, you know, like, you know, modify, you know, more resilient supply chains and antitrust. That's all stuff that, you know, may or may not be a good idea, but that is not the thrust of the issue. Unfortunately for the Biden administration, their fate is not in their own, you know, in their own hands. It's in the hands of the Fed. So you we will see tweets like this, which try to make it seem like they can do something about it. Maybe we'll, we'll catch a break and inflation will go yeah, down and we'll have a soft landing. I Honestly, I probably would have done the same thing, Jimmy, because the polls, yeah. the polling is terrible. You know, the economics yes. is number one problem that people have. Everybody knows costs are up. you got to blame somebody. They're going to go after corporate America like they kind of, you know, they go after gas stations whenever the, you know, the price of gas I'm surprised there's not more tweets up. like this. Yeah, yeah, I mean, wait, I'm wait, surprised you know, there's not tweets uh, like Brian this Brian and day. Jimmy, if we, I understand uh, we are on CNBC and you want to be on the corporate side, and that's understandable. Uh, but like just, stop, just answer this one question. Do like you think that do you think that corporate power in terms of concentration of many, many businesses in the hands of fewer and fewer big corporations? Is that a problem? Is that a problem that antitrust laws are designed to remedy? And shouldn't we have stronger antitrust enforcement? I, yes or no? I think in some areas it, it might be a problem in other areas not. But taken together, that is not the reason that we've been suffering this, you know, the highest inflation in 40 years. Yeah. Again, these are, you know, you may want to do something about that, but it's really kind of orthogonal to the issue right now. Yeah, and I, you know, you know, I got a, Professor Reich. I will say this, you know, CNBC stands for Consumer News and Business Channel, so I'm trying to put the consumer, the C first as well, and I'm a consumer as well. I, I would, if you're asking me my opinion, nobody cares. I'll give it, which is I agree, but I also would agree that why has why have you know certain tech companies been able to lord over monopolies? and destroy local news media when we have no investigative reporting on a local level, which allows politicians to get away with pretty much whatever they want, and the bridges go on and don't get built for three years because there's no local investigative journalism. That's my own opinion. Let's move on to the second issue, and that is taxes. Okay, and the tweet about paying, you know, billionaires, 25% sort of wealth tax. I want to say this, and listen, nobody has any sympathy for billionaires, okay? <laughs> I'll never be one. We'll probably all never be one. I get it. I know a couple. The Tax Foundation reports that the top 1% make 21% of the income, but they pay 40% of the taxes. 47% of Americans have no net federal income tax bill after deductions. They pay Medicare, Social Security, state and local taxes, but no federal income tax bill. So 
Professor Reich, what do you make of this, this wealth tax proposal, which but didn't work in Europe, and I just don't know why they keep pushing it here? Uh, well, first of all, let's start with the reality of, of extraordinary inequality in this country and more and more of wealth concentrated at the very top. And that's been documented. I mean, everybody knows it. Uh, the median wage is only slightly higher than it was 40 years ago, adjusted for inflation. And most of the gains well, professor, from fa the economy have gone sorry, to you're conflating, the top. I apologize for inter interjecting because I love you coming on the show. You're 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 sort of conflating income and wealth inequality. There is no doubt wealth inequality, to your point, is at probably the highest level in 100 years, if not ever. But that's stocks and that's income. Billionaires, as you know, don't have income. Well, that's right. And, and, they, and, and so if you have only an income tax uh, and billionaires don't have much income, if they're just accumulating stocks and there is no tax on their appreciated income, then by definition, you're not going to be taxing billionaires. Jimmy? Uh, I'm not bothered if people in this country can get really fabulously wealthy by creating goods and services that people really value. So I'm sure Europe, you're mentioning Europe, wishes it had more of these super entrepreneurs like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and the guys at Google. If you get rich that way, I mean, I, I don't know why that why that is exactly is a problem. It isn't a problem. And I would hate to do anything that would prevent people from starting businesses and even getting fabulously wealthy because the value they create I, for all of us is far more than the value of their shares. And we can all debate t Thomas Piketty and go over that book and, and all th those theories. But I guess, Professor Reich, my, my beef and why, why we are talking about it is, again, it's kind of this us versus them division that they're putting out there like, well, everyone's paying all these taxes and billionaires aren't doing it. Maybe billionaires aren't, but the upper income, all three of us, on this screen, are, I'm, I hope, are paying, Thanks, our, quote, our fair share in taxes, given that we, I presume we're all income earners and none of us has founded and sold a company and just live off, you know, unrealized capital gains. But it's this idea that that, you know, somehow we're not doing our fair share and everybody else is carrying the load when the reality is the middle class tax burden in America has only declined for 40 years. If you make one hundred and twenty five grand a year, Professor, have a house and two kids, your net federal income tax burden is probably zero, probably zero. Well, the typical American uh, earns, uh, American family is now earning $70,000 a year and paying a rate, an income tax rate of 14%. Uh, is that fair? Is that not fair? Well, you just have to look at the billionaire class. Now, I think you're absolutely right, Brian, in terms of the top 10% are paying a lot in taxes, but billionaires are paying in terms of income taxes, as you pointed out just a moment ago, uh, they're paying almost nothing. In fact, many of them are paying zero in income taxes, and that's not fair. That's what the billionaire tax uh, is, uh, what Biden's billionaire taxes is, is trying to rectify. Yeah. Well, and it's, you know, it scared me enough, Professor Rice, that I've decided not to become a billionaire. <laughs> Jimmy, because I just don't want to be, I, you know, I worry about that and I, you know, I want to do my fair It's not share. for you. Brian, no, that's think, not for you. Yeah, I'm 52. I think, you yeah. know, I was going to start, but yeah, you're, Brian, you're a man of the people. That's not for you. You know, you, 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 both of you are, both of you are men of the people. Let me, let me just say one quick thing, and Quickly. that is that, uh, that we are on the cusp of the largest 
intergenerational transfer of wealth in history as very, very wealthy baby boomers yeah. begin to die yeah. off. Yeah. Uh, and, and the problem is we don't have, you know, you don't, you don't ever get any tax on the appreciation of that wealth because yeah. at death, as you both know, uh, the basis moves up to the market value at the time of death. And that's another very important it aspect is. of well, the tax reformers. They, 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 they nailed the timeline on stocks and housing just by being born in certain years. I, I'm just jealous. But we'll get you back on to talk about that as well. Professor Robert Reich, Jimmy Petakoukas, thank you very much. Yeah, it's, it's a good point. The boomers nailed the timeline, just wrote everything up. All right, coming up. Concerns intensify over a respiratory illness outbreak in China and how it may be spreading to at least one American state. Dr. Zika Manuel is up next on that. All right, welcome back. Growing concern about a surge in respiratory illnesses in China largely impacting children. In fact, it's overwhelming some pediatric hospital wards. Some worry it is coming here. In Ohio County reporting a, quote, extremely high number of pediatric pneumonia cases. So what exactly is this mystery bug? Let's bring in Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel. He is the vice provost of global initiatives at the University of Pennsylvania, also a former COVID advisor, President Biden. Dr. Emanuel, good to have you back on, although I wish it was under different circumstances. What do we know about this virus? Well, first of all, uh, it may not be a virus. It may be a bacteria. Mycoplasma uh, pneumoniae uh, is a small bacteria, uh, atypical bacteria, as we call it, without a cell wall, uh, without a uh, perimeter wall. Um, and it affects children more than adults. And it may, it leads to prolonged coughing and uh, flu-like symptoms. And it may be the cause here. We actually don't monitor for it, unfortunately. The uh, uh, CDC doesn't have a regular surveillance system for it. We should also mention that we're having a big uptick nationwide of RSV, syncytial mm-hmm. virus, and that no doubt is adding to some of the problems. So you probably have four viruses that are circulating, uh, or three viruses and a bacteria that are circulating in the country at the same time, influenza, flu, COVID, uh, RSV, and this mycoplasma. What, what, first off, shouldn't the, the CDC be tracking this, maybe they don't have a way to, but I'm assuming they do given they, they tracked COVID. But also, do we need more transparency out of China? I mean, really? Uh, well, those are two separate questions. I know. So let's, let's start with the China issue. I agree with you. I think we haven't had transparency uh, out of China. Uh, China has not uh, played by the same international public health rules that, and standards that everyone else does. Uh, They've had this uptick going uh, in uh, pediatric uh, pneumonia and uh, respiratory infection going for a while. And only last week, the WHO called out, and I quote, there is limited detail information available to fully characterize the overall risk of these reported cases of respiratory illness in children. You know, if China was being forthcoming, we would have had that information since this has been going on for uh, many weeks there. And I think uh, the international community has to put pressure on China to be more forthcoming, more transparent. You know, their government doesn't regularly share these kind of outbreaks with the population. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you just, if they're so widespread, you just can't hide them. But we really do need to have these things 
uh, uh, much more available to the world, uh, we saw what could happen if a novel pathogen appears and we, uh, they don't share yeah. that information with the world. On the CDC monitoring system, I think this has been a problem and a worry that many of us, uh, because of COVID, expressed that the CDC is not doing, uh, just doesn't have the resources to do a sufficient job of monitoring. The way yeah. they monitor is local communities take samples, process them, make counts, hospitals make assessments of influenza-like illnesses, and they report them up to the CDC. Um, unfortunately, this is a very creaky reporting system. Uh, the CDC's ability in its computer system to get the data are uh, yeah. old and not updated. And local public, uh, local states and uh, localities aren't required to report them, even though the CDC sends them a lot of money to actually That's, do this monitoring. You, it is not an optimal system, and we need to improve it. And these outbreaks tell us yeah. why we can't rely on what we've got. After after all that, and we still can't report correctly, I, it blows my mind. Dr. Zeke Emanuel, really appreciate your insight. Valuable. Thank you very much. All right, coming up, a $250,000 a year job to do what? Joanna Stern tried it out. She's here. Wall Street Journal tech reporter and CBC contributor Joanna Stern recently came across a job posting for something called an AI prompt engineer. So she decided, why not? I'm going to apply because it pays so well. Joanna, welcome. We don't have a lot of time. What is an AI prompt engineer and why does it pay $250,000 a year? Well, it can pay up to that amount, but okay. really this is the art of AI whispering. It is a job for people who really think they know how to write the best prompts, the text you put into the chat GPT little window uh, to get the best output from these large language models like chat GPT or BARD or whatever the company may be using. So it's all about figuring out the best way to talk to the chatbots. So what, what, what skill, you took a class, great piece by the way, you took a class, Coursera class, what is it? What exactly would you, what skills do you need? You need to be good at writing. You need to have really precise language to get the best answer out of these chatbots. You do need some coding. The, the higher end of this job was 250K at this, at this heavy startup in New York City. But that was really for someone who also has some coding knowledge. But the main part of the job here is coding in the English language. You are programming, you are talking in the English language to these chatbots. Is it harder than it sounds? Because it sounds easy. It's definitely harder than it sounds. You are trying to figure out what is the way to get the answer out of this chatbot. And so you need to sort of know a, sequ a, a series of different types of in, uh, prompts that these language, mo language models respond to. So yes, I learned this in my Coursera class. I took this, uh, it is a six week class, but I only took for two weeks, don't That's tell right. anybody. Um, and so you learn yeah. some of these prompts and the and the professor actually starts teach the teaching by going through different types of prompts. Amazing stuff. Joanna Stern. Great piece. Thank you very much, Joanna. Good. By the way, if you get the job, good luck. I'm kidding. Don't leave what you're doing. By the way, up next, CBC special Charlie Munger, a life of wit and wisdom. It's a big one. Stay tuned. You got to watch this. It's next. We'll see you tomorrow. Experience the joy of running in the new Triumph 22 from Saucony, the original running brand. Stacked with luxury foam cushioning, Triumph 22 turns miles into smiles with the ultimate blend of comfort and energy return. Shop Triumph 22 at Saucony.com. That's S-A-U-C-O-N-Y.com.